1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nikazi Oates, the host of the channel. With me today is Bryant Terry. He is a James Beard and NAACP Image Award-winning chef, educator, and author, renowned for his activism to create a healthy, just, and sustainable food system. Since 2015, He has been the chef-in-residence at the Museum of African Diaspora in San Francisco. He is the editor-in-chief of four colored books, an imprint, a penguin random house, and 10-speed press. We'll be talking about his newest book, Black Food, Stories, Art, and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora, which he curated and edited. Black Food was named one of the best books of the year by Time Out, Vice, and Publishers Weekly.
2: Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Kazi. I, can I just say you have one of the, the best uh, radio slash podcast voices I've heard all year. <laughs> Thank
1: you so much. I'm feeling no lies.
2: <laughs> Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so what we do on this show, we kick off the interview by having the guests talk a little bit about themselves, but I want to um, do it through the space that you work in. So in in preparation for this interview, I um, read that in your lab or your workspace, (laughs) you have a portrait of Edna Lewis and a poster um, or a flyer of the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program. Um, among the many pieces of art that decorates your um, workspace. So tell me the significance of this culinary icon, as well as the cultural and political icons through the Black Panther Party.
2: Sure. Uh, So, yeah, the lab is my shed that I built uh, when my wife and I were pregnant with our second child. And it gives me workspace outside of our main house, and it's more than just workspace. It's um, I call it the lab because I feel like, you know, it's the most important space where I ideate and um, experiment and, you know, just figure out my next moves. But it's, it's probably the, the, the space outside of nature that I go to to get uh, the most inspiration because it, it does have a lot of my, my art collection is in there. And so it's decorated with a a number of pieces that I have, but the two that you mentioned, um, one, the, the portrait of Edna Lewis by, uh, the photographer, uh, John T Hill, who, um, has been, you know, just such an important person in terms of how we, um, have been able to, um, see and connect with Miss Lewis visually because he, you know, any most pictures that you see of Edna Lewis, John T Hill probably captured um, Mm. her for those images. Um, He he was a graduate chair at uh, Yale in the photography program, Mm. but I think he's just kind of, Doing whatever he wants to do now, so that piece is very special to me. I have had the opportunity to get to know him, and we become friends. So he gifted me that portrait of her, and I love it because she has, you know, her hair just beautifully styled naturally, and she has on, you know, some earrings that look like they're from West Africa, and she just, you know, exuding all types of goddess energy. And then the um, there is an image that was inspired by a photograph of the Black Panther Party's Free Breakfast for Children program. And it's actually a line drawing by um, one of my big brothers and mentors, Brett Cook Disney, who's a visual artist um, here in the Bay Area based in Berkeley. So, yeah, those two pieces, I actually have both of those on my bookshelf. So when I'm Zooming, uh, typically you'll see uh, Edna Lewis and the Black Panthers behind me. But um, I'll start with the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Um and I and I feel like it's always important for me to use their full um, name uh, that you know they use when they were founded. You know, I know we colloquially we call them the Black Panthers, but they were the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Why? Because in the in the mid to late sixties, they were addressing the 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 same issues that we're addressing now: police violence, uh, police coming into our communities and violating the rights of um citizens, you know, <laughs> people who should have, uh, their rights protected. And, 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 and as we've seen, um, all too often, um, you know, not just violence, but sometimes actual, um, murdering citizens. So, uh, I always think it's important to recognize that that's, you know, addressing police violence was an impetus for the Black Panthers to, um, you know, be created. That that was the, the kind of like, um, the the energy that was happening in Oakland, they were policing the police, and so, um, you know, I would say in terms of the inspiration for me to commit a, a large part of my adult life to being a food justice activist, someone who is working to towards creating a more healthful, and just, and sustainable food system, um, largely. my entree into this work was because of the work that the black Panthers did in the late sixties and the seventies. And when I was a a graduate student uh, at NYU, I learned more about their survival programs. I had known about the black Panthers obviously, and knew that they were more than the the kind of negative portrayal by the mainstream media of them just being kind of the gun toting, um, you know, just Loud talking militants. I knew that that was just in line with the the way in which you know many of our revolutionaries are vilified and the propaganda to turn the people against them. But I didn't know the extent to which they had you know so many meaningful programs that were addressed at um, you know meeting the basic needs of people living in communities. And they had over sixty of them under the rubric of their survival programs. <clears throat> and the ones that moved me the most. Were the the ones that I think so brilliantly addressed this intersection of poverty, malnutrition, and institutional racism. Um, you know that they had grocery giveaways in which they were giving away uh, bags of food to low income residents of the Bay Area, and then they had their free breakfast for children program that they founded, which was aimed at feeding children a hot, nourishing breakfast every morning. And so, you know, learning about that. P- that work, um, the programmatic response to issues of poverty and malnutrition and and racism in our communities, but um you know, being very clear that the issues that they were addressing then we were still you know dealing with them, we weren't out of the woods, you know I was and I always talk about this moment because it was such a powerful moment for me uh to see the 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 world through a different lens after learning more about their work and you know really experientially kind of understanding that young people, um, were being stuffed and starved. You know, I was on a subway, I was going to TA one morning and it was like seven thirty in the morning. And I see these young people across the train, um, on, on my way to Manhattan from Brooklyn and they were on the way to school, presumably, um, eating candy bars and red hot Cheetos and drinking energy drink, you know, the whatever, like the energy beverages and sugary, uh, juices, and sodas, and I was just very clear that you know there needed to be a shift, and I knew it wasn't about them. I knew you know I I was very clear we can't blame the victim because you know it was clear that structurally, um, one these were the type of foods that were available in the communities and that they were aggressively being marketed to consume, and um, you know two there's just like that kind of. Understanding of these structural realities and um so it, that 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 moment and that period of research led me into food justice activism and i um you know started my journey from there but you know Anna Lewis came a little bit later because I didn't really know about Anna Lewis until I became um until I was in culinary school, and I think I was one of two black people um in my class in culinary school. I went to the Natural Gourmet Institute in um, Manhattan. It, it was based in Manhattan, but um, now they've been absorbed by the Institute of Culinary Education. But it's the first health supportive culinary um, school in the country, and so the focus was really on you know looking at these different eating models from macrobiotics to vegetarianism to veganism to you know raw, raw food diet, and just thinking about food as medicine and how, you know, as chefs, we could really play the a, a role of being healers. And I went in very clear that I don't want to work in a restaurant. You know, I didn't want to uh, be a caterer or anything like that. I went in with the very clear goal of gaining the skills to, you know, found this organization, be healthy, that use cooking as a way to engage and excite young people, um, and, and move them towards, um, you know, being politicized around food issues so that they could be the ones who are kind of leading the change in their communities. So, you know, in, in cooking school, I was, I'm always thinking about mentors, whether, you know, in real life or, um, mentored by the words of, of people who've come before us. And so I started researching cause I just didn't, I felt like there was a uh, very little mention of black chefs Uh, So much of the, you know, it was a bit different than your traditional um, kind of culinary school where it's largely centered around like French and Italian cooking techniques. Um, Actually, Asian uh, cooking techniques inspired a lot of the curriculum, you know, coming out of kind of macrobiotics being so ascended in the 1970s when the school was founded. But um, I I still wanted to find black chefs that I could look up to and who would inspire me to continue to hone my craft. And I discovered Edna Lewis. And I was so um, just blown away by her for a couple of reasons in her story. Um, One, she was such a eclectic and just like a brilliant, just free black woman. You know, she was she just did whatever she wanted to do. You know, people know her as a chef and a cookbook um, writer. But I know at one point she was. Like, um, was she, like, the secretary of Oscar de la Renta? Maybe she was a a seamstress for for that company. Um, So she was, like, working in fashion. I know that she had some dealings with, um, you know, far-left political movements uh, in New York City. I feel like she was involved with the Communist Party. So anyway, I was just like, "This, this is who I'm trying to model myself out after, you know, in terms of just like not being limited to to one way of kind of expressing brilliance in the world. Um, so, yeah, I learned about her and I was really impressed with the fact that she disrupted this. This what I've seen is this very um, reductive way that people often imagine black food, um, either as kind of antebellum survival foods or the um the big flavored meats and overcooked vegetables and sugary desserts that one might find at a soul food restaurant, um. But she talked about the, the diversity and the complexity and the seasonality and the um just the 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 bounty of you know these thriving local food systems in traditional southern communities. You know specifically her where she came from, Freetown, Virginia. Um. So yeah, this is. She just had all the right hit all the right notes in terms of like who I imagine um kind of modeling at least partially my um trajectory in in the food space, and so um I, I keep them behind me to to just always keep me grounded in what is most important and I, I I started this work because of the movement building piece. I really wanted to be a part of this. Um, what I would argue is the most important movement of the late 20th and 21st century, uh, food justice. And, um, you know, I want to always be grounded in and accountable to community, regardless of if I'm doing like actual grassroots community building work or, you know, working as a publisher as I am now. I I always keep uh, an eye on the grassroots and how I can support that work. Yeah, definitely. And to that point
1: about food justice, you know, I think about the number of ways that we can enter into a particular social issue. Um, I once heard that um, you were introduced to food by listening to hip hop. Um, so if you could tell our listeners about the significance of food, music,
2: and culture. Sure. I, came, I grew up in a musical family. I always talk about my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, um, Edward Bryant, and he founded a group, Eddie Bryant and the Four Stars of Harmony, and they were a traveling gospel um, quartet in Memphis, um, or, you know, in the South. We were from Memphis, but they traveled throughout the South. They were uh, the first Black um, gospel group to be played on Memphis radio. <clears throat> and so because of my grandfather, all of my parents... Uh, my mom's siblings are musical from, you know, my mom who sings at a church choir to my Uncle Don, who was a, a really popular singer songwriter in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, before he even was doing songwriting, he was a, uh, um, you know, he had a, his own career. And he recently, um, what, 2017, he put out his third secular album. His first one was like in 1968, I think. And then in 2019, he released his third secular album, and it was nominated for a Grammy for Best Traditional Blues Album. And, you know, he's just been, in terms of like family member who has been successful, who has been an independent artist, um, who um, has been able to amass, you know, wealth in order to kind of support family and, shift uh, realities for some of our family members who um, weren't able to you know, tap into formal education and things like that. I mean, that's he's just been an inspiration for me since I was young. So all that to say is that we just had a thriving like music culture in our family. We had a thriving food culture in our family because we have roots in the, the agrarian South. And these things were inseparable. Whenever we gathered, it was just... You know, family members, my um, uncle was playing piano, his brothers were crooning, my mom and her sisters were singing, you know, it was like music was always it was like talent shows that whenever we gather. And of course, food was always central to family gatherings as well. And, you know, part of it is about me reliving these magical moments and recognizing that so many people um haven't um had the opportunity to gather around the table in these ways and and you know but the the larger political project is kind of reintegrating what i see you know our industrialized food system is created food, like food is this commodity and it's on one side and all the things that have traditionally been so integrated with the way that we grow food and, and, and cook it and eat it like music and art and culture and community. Um, they're, you know, way over on this other side. And so I, I really see the work that I do is kind of bridging this chasm and bringing these things back together. Um, so yeah, but All that to say, like, I know this is kind of a (laughs) securitist, let me get to, to the point of just like the moment that I, I would say was the catalyst for me becoming a food justice activist was when I heard the hip hop song Beef by the, the seminal, um, hip hop group Boogie Down Productions, um, with their lead rapper Karis one and DJ producer Scott LaRock. um, yeah. I heard that and it just changed everything for me because like many people, I, I think I was convinced that, you know, <laughs> animals are just kind of like running around in the field and they go to sleep and then they end up on our plate. But, you know, I had no idea about the type of violence that animals endured in our industrialized food system. And, um, it was just one of those moments where I couldn't look back. Like once I learned about that, um, with Kara one so brilliantly articulating the the the, the violence um, against animal and the, the animals and the impact that it has not on only on the animals but on human health and the environment as well, I really felt like I I just I had to change my own personal habits and, and attitudes and politics, but that really um, excited me about being active and and trying to you know, change these systems. And so, um, it started with that song. And then my dad actually, <laughs> he said, he'd give me the tape because we listened to tapes back then, um, of <laughs> the Boogie Down Productions. Edutainment was the name of the, um, LP. Um, so he said, he'd give me the tape. If I would read this book, the jungle, um, and then, um, you know, write him a one page synopsis cause he was a tiger dad, but, um, it was a, it was a, a song and a book, um, you know, fiction (laughs) that actually kind of moved me into this work. And so I always recognize that people learn in different ways. Maybe a heady intellectual lecture might uh, move certain people to think differently about um, food, but maybe it's a delicious meal. Maybe it's a song. Maybe it's a a riveting piece of um, art and so I'm I'm always thinking about the multiple ways that we can um, kind of inspire and educate people uh, beyond just text.
1: Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, beyond um, text and to the point of inspiration, um, one of the questions that I ask the guests who have been on the show that I've interviewed is, um, I don't think we talk enough about moments of insecurity or doubt, um, that we have had and discussed it with the public. Um, and so I want to take this opportunity for you to reflect on, um, you know, this great career that you have had in trying to reimagine how we, um, consume, um, food to think about a moment of self doubt that you had, but then also couple that with a moment of, um, reassurance or clarity or even triumph that you, um, had during your, your, um, during your life's work?
2: Sure. I'll say early on one, one of the biggest moments of self-doubt was when my literary agent and I were shopping my second book, uh, Vesh, uh vegan soul kitchen. My first book grub, um, was authored with my, my friend and colleague, Anna LaPay. And, um, you know, we got like an amazing book deal for first time authors. Well, I, I was a first time author. She had uh, co-written a book with her mother, Frances Moore LePay, who's major inspiration. She wrote the seminal text, uh, "Diet for a Small Planet in the 1970s. And um, I was just very confident that, you know, coming off of getting this wildly um, we got, we got an advance that we shouldn't have gotten, but it is what it is. But it was, it was, it was much bigger than I think we deserved as these young authors. But, you know, I'm like confident, like, Hey, I'm coming into my second book deal. It's about to be on and popping. I'm gonna get twice that amount or whatever I was thinking. (laughs) And, and, um, we shopped vegan. Soul kitchen to about a dozen publishers and, um, 10 of them flat out said, no, they were just like, no, this, this isn't going to work. Uh, what did they say? You're cutting the, 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 pie too thinly, you know, what they were, what many of them were trying to, to, what they were saying, you know, they, they said one thing, but what they meant was black folks, like nobody's going to buy a book about black veganism or, or or kind of an imagined kind of version of black cuisine. That's, Devoid of animal products. You know, are black people even vegans? Like, do they even eat vegetables? That was the energy we were getting from some of these um, publishing houses. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, like, uh, to be fair, uh, there were a number of editors that were very um, enthusiastic and excited about the project. But I think when it came to the people who make decisions in terms of like looking at potential profits and losses, um, they didn't get it. And it was just one of those moments where. You know, when I kind of just ruminating on my, the arc of my career, and when I think about that period, I'm very clear that, you know, creatives, the people on the ground doing the work, the people out in the field, we have to trust ourselves. We have to know that our instincts, um, our intuition, you know, just like how we are tracking like the current kind of cultural zeitgeist. Um, but even thinking about what the emerging zeitgeist is, like we know it, and these big corporations, they 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 have no idea. And you know, so often the the metrics that are used to determine who's worthy of getting a book deal is just part of the story. It, it doesn't tell the whole story. And I think we need to have you know, and and as a publisher, having been an author, it helps give me uh, a better understanding of how you know it's, it's not just about how many. Instagram followers you have, or what your social media presence is, but you know there there, there are so many ways that we need to think about like um, the potential success of of projects and and you know working with creatives. But uh, all that to say is that fast forward to twenty twenty one, we know that Black people are the fastest growing population of vegans in the United States, and. You know, I came from a community like, look, as, as much as we often or historically have kind of imagined veganism as the the practices of these upper, you know, middle class white suburbanites or more recently, you know, young white hipsters living in gentrified urban centers. Um, black people have been connected to this type of um, way of eating and cooking for a long time. You know, I always, I think it's important for me to uplift the kind of thread of black, um, food and health, uh, black led food and health activism throughout the 20th century. I mean, look, the first time I even learned about eating vegetarian or just, coming into contact with the idea about veganism was from black seven day at And then, you know, after my, uh, <laughs> kind of like, whatever, I feel like it was a rite of passage for a lot of people in my generation. Um, after reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, just being like kind of obsessive about the nation of Islam. <laughs> and so, you know, during that period, learning about the health ministry that Elijah Muhammad had and, um, you know, his two volume, um, collection How to Eat to Live, Um, then learning about Rastafarianism and, you know, their whole uh, ITAL diet and approach to clean eating. And so I I just think it's important for me to really uplift uh, people of African descent who've been thinking writing active around these type of issues. But even if you go to look at a lot of the traditional diets in Western Central Africa, or, you know, even traditional diets in the American South, I mean, they're largely vegetable based. you know, before our industrialized food system, like working class and working poor people simply couldn't afford to have meat at every single meal. And so, um, you know, this idea that it's just like, we just have the, the, the worst diet in the world, the way in which our, our food is, is vilified. I just think it is is wrongheaded. But all that to say, when um I wasn't getting these publishers kind of enthusiastically throwing money at me, it did there was self doubt. You know, I was wondering, like, what did I get myself into? What's going on? But we we per, we persisted and we got one of the publishers, um, and Renee Sedlar, this editor at Hachette um, Books, or um, they saw the vision. She bought the book, and that book continues to sell. I mean, like even that came out t- two thousand nine, and I'm still getting checks from Vegan Soul Kitchen. So, you know, not, I mean, and not to be bragging you know, or whatever, but just to say that I had the vision, and I really want to encourage creatives to stick um, firmly. To your vision uh, and believe in, in in yourself because oftentimes you know these corporations or handlers who um, may not get the vision they'll throw they'll try to throw us off but we we just have to really double down and, and know that um, we're the experts and you know maybe in that moment um, we're we're not there but I think um, it's about kind of envisioning a future that we want to see and knowing that we can kind of move towards that and manifest it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. So I want to turn to talking about the book, Black Food. Um, and one of the things that you said was telling the whole story or reframing the whole story. So to that I want to ask you what characterizes black food, particularly as you um, have it um, outlined or as it is portrayed in the book, or I would call it anthology.
2: Sure. I I think the main thing is that black food is many things. (laughs) There is no singular black food. There is no singular black food narrative. There are multiple narratives that are you know happening globally throughout history, and the main impetus for this book project was really giving uh, people of African descent and uh, Africans, people of African descent, the Black diaspora um, voice to tell our story, uh, uh, our or I should say our our stories of uh, Black food and and how we connect to these histories and cultures. Um, you know, one of the things when I was reaching out to the more than 100 contributors or potential contributors to the book. I actually, um, you know, sent an email kind of connecting with folks that I, I thought would should be a part of it. And then um, I wanted to read you a quick excerpt from the email because this really set the tone for um, what this book would um, become. And so to be clear, also, um, Toni Morrison's Black uh, book, which was, uh, you know, an encyclopedic look at Black history and culture, um, that she edited in the seventies, in the that book had like a major impact on me. I mean, I remember when I was an undergrad, just kind of like in the library, and it just kind of fell out, and I saw it, and I was just blown away, and I, I was really. You know, taken by the the multiple ways in which she told these stories, um, not just with text, but with archival photos and and song lyrics and ephemera and just all these, you know, different levels that, you know, when I thought about putting Black Food together, I was always keeping an eye on what she did in that book. But um I I, I wrote um to the different people When I think about black food, I keep coming back to Toni Morrison's quote, quote, the function of racism is distraction. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being, end quote. While this book will acknowledge the historical and contemporary ways in which our people have been marginalized, exploited, and erased, the main focus of this project is our agency, creation, and empowerment. What emerges when we are not distracted by racism? How are we empowered? What are the ways our humanity is displayed? what are we curious about? What brings us joy? Um, so yeah, that was how I laid it out. And I feel like, you know, people stepped up to the challenge and I, I you know, I jokingly, I'm sure you know about FUBU, the, the, the label, the fashion brand started by an entrepreneur, Damon Johns. Um, and so I told people, I was like, this is FUBU. This is for us by us. This book is, um, I, I'm I'm putting this together without concern for the white gaze. I want this to be something us having a conversation with each other and inviting the world to, um, you know, listen in and, and be a part of it. Um, so, yeah, the, the 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 main thing for me is um, w- when I was thinking about the book, how can I create space for all these people throughout the black diaspora to tell their most, most authentic story about their connection with black food? And then, um, you know, we'll,
1: That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's so funny that you um, mentioned Professor Toni Morrison's um, The Black Book, because one of the things that I think is so um, um, great and um, unprecedented about that book is that in many ways it was like the first like black national museum right mm. um, that we um would you know that we would get it in the form of of that um book that she edited which is fantastic and i actually own one of the first um copies of of the black book. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. But I see a through line um to black food because as you stated, um, that quote from the late um Tony Morrison, Professor Tony Morrison, you know, what would happen if we remove um the you, you know, omnipresence of racism and the the white gaze, look at the world that we have and the world that we Um, have created. Mm -hmm. You, I think, have done that beautifully with this, um, with this book. First of all, it's stunning. It's um, vibrant. The colors are just, um, just so sensorial. And um, it's, I must say, a collector's item. I <laughs> um, Appreciate, that. appreciate <laughs> it's, that. It's really, really stunning. And I want to talk about how you are bending the genre of, of cookbook, kind of in the same way that I saw um, Professor Morrison do it with the black book, right? And so um, in your introduction, you quote, say this, I wanted people to be able to look at it like a coffee table book or to go into their kitchens and to use it as a cookbook if they wanted to. And you also said, um, black food is meant to live alongside you, not only on coffee tables or credenzas or nightstands, toss it in your bag, satchel, purse, or on the passenger seat and ride it out to your local farmer's market or grocery store. And literally, I actually follow your words. Um, last month I was, um, work in for um, a general election where I live. And I actually brought the the book with me. And when we had um, some downtime, which one can imagine it was, often. Mm -hmm. Um, I pulled out the book and I started reading it and my colleague, she said, Oh, are you going to cook? I said, well, no, not tonight. (laughs) Tonight is going to be a long night. Um, but I just got this, um, copy of black food and it's remarkable. And so I said, you can, you can look at it. And she was stunned at, um, what was in the book, particularly she is from Africa and in the section um, where you have the contributors talk about um, their particular food cultures, it was so great because it became a, um, a conversation starter. So she would elaborate on some of the um, ideas and um, the the food ways um, in that particular um uh, country in, in, in Africa. And so I was just like, wow, this actually speaks to what Brian was actually getting to. It doesn't have to just live, um, in the house, but you can travel with it. And it's just (laughs) remarkable. And Bon Appetit actually said the same thing too. They said um, this, I just want to read to you. um, The book, which brings together a chorus of voices across Black American diaspora, shapeshifts from recipes to art to essays. You'll find something new every time you open the book to a different page. It's almost hard to call it a cookbook because you'll be gaining more than a few recipes from it. So nice. to that point, <laughs> tell me about how, you know, th- the desire to dispel or even bend the genre of a cookbook, because, you know, I think it's part cookbook, but also part exhi- exhibition book.
2: Yeah. Corsha um, Wilson, who wrote the profile of me, um, in the New York times in advance of black food publication said that the book in her eyes is more akin to an art exhibition. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, you get it. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, yes. you know, when I think about the impact that Toni Morrison's book had on me, I mean, just like this book was put together in the seventies. And then I mm-hmm. stumbled across it as an undergrad in the late nineties. And I, Imagine that this book will have the same impact out 30 years from now. I want people to pick this book up and to just be equally moved and excited to delve into our histories and and, and I hope inspire people to bring things into the world that they think need to, to um, exist here. Um, was it Toni Morrison or, or Alice Waters who said, uh, or Alice Walker? I, I feel like it was either Toni Morrison and Alice Walker who, or maybe it was Maya Angelou. It was Maya Angelou, I think, who talked about like, you know, writing the book that you want to see in the world. One of those brilliant. Oh yes. Giant. That's Professor
1: Morrison. That yeah, was with,
2: a doctor, Tommy, yeah, Tony Morrison. Yep. Yeah. Yep, okay. yep, with the bluest eye. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. So, um, but I, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we were so privileged to have Portia Burke, Who's a longtime editor at Ten Speed or um, Penguin Random House? Um, work on this project. Uh, Portia Burke was uh, my Angelou's editor. She ushered the re, um, the kind of whatever, the republication of Malcolm X's autobiography, Malcolm X, and she um, also ushered in like a reprinting of the um, Toni Morrison's Black Book. And you know, I was very clear that. <clears throat> with my publisher, Tinsby Press, and I love them, and they've done an amazing job of supporting me, including giving me my own publishing imprint. But I was very clear that we needed black eyes on this book. You know, my editor, um, Kelly Snowden, is a white woman, and I love working with her, and she's done right by me. But this book required a black editor um, who could. And, and and not just, so just to give you a little background in terms of like how this book came together, you know, even when we were thinking about just like art direction and visuals, um, you know, 10-Speed Press rarely works with like an outside art director, but I was very adamant that we needed not just a black art director, but a black art director who understands, you know, black visual language and aesthetics and, um, you know, understands black history and could connect with the work in a spiritual way, right? And I think that, you know, George McCalman, our brilliant, our director, uh, he brought us a game. And, you know, from the the beautiful cover that you mentioned um to the design and just everything. I feel like this book, it sings um, visually because of his leadership. And so the thing about <laughs> the thing about Black Food is that I've done in in not as ambitiously, but you know, most of what I've done in here, I've done throughout my body of work. If you go back to Grub, my first book, we brought together these essays that talked about the problems in our industrialized food system. And, you know, we provided people with like nuts and bolts, uh, tips and tools to um, make changes in their life, you know, as consumers and as community members and as citizens. Um, And then we have the, 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 the recipes that are, you know, kind of curated as menus. Um, I, I commissioned this New York-based uh, artist, Tindja Nikita, to do these line, lino cuts that represented each season because I divided the menus by season. And so... This is just the first time that I've gotten a lot of money to do it so big and so well. <laughs> so I just want to say that all my books I've included, like, you know, the playlist or suggested soundtracks with each recipe and, you know, suggested films and books and, you know, talked about these different histories and, you know, really looking at kind of like not just cooking, but also the process of cookbook making as collage and bringing together these different elements to create something um, that's, you know, new and exciting so, um, you know, Black food, it, it, we can't talk about the book without talking about my residency at the Museum of the African Diaspora. And, I, you know, that also should largely shaped the direction of this book as well. I mean, I've been operating out of a fine art museum since 2015, and it was important for me to include... Um, you know, that art be a through line in the book. Um, you know, obviously the, the more than what 70 recipes are through line, but every chapter opens with a different, uh, visual piece that really encapsulates the energy and the content, um, that, you know, follows. Um, we have the, the playlists and the, the soundtracks there's like, you know, essays, there's poetry, There. Um, you know, our prescriptions for taking care of ourselves in these kind of perilous times, so you know, as you mentioned earlier, I think the the beauty about this book is that people everyone could find something in here. you know, I know that a lot of people they just for a number of reasons don't cook a lot, and they'll see this as something that helps them learn more about the 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 histories of of black food cultures. Um, I know a lot of people are who immediately started cooking from this. I was getting like photos and tagged and images on the day that the book was published. So I know that that's a draw for people. And then I hope that, you know, people find multiple uses. Maybe people who came for the book for the the, the essays will eventually find their, their, their way into the kitchen, making the recipes. And, you know, I know people people tell me all the time and this is like they're they keep it on their coffee table because when they when people come over they want um them to flip through it and so uh i'm i'm glad that it is showing up in in these multiple ways in people's lives and i hope that um you know people can eventually consume it in its totality or maybe not you know whatever once i once once i'm done with it then it it, it does what it needs to do in the world and i don't really have control over that (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that is different about this um, this cookbook um, compared to your previous ones is that it includes meat. Um, so tell me about the decision to feature um, recipes that um, includes meat.
2: Sure. That was a tough decision. And it was largely like what was most kind of stressful about deciding to include animal products was feeling like I'd potentially let down uh, many of my long time, you know, people have been following my work since (laughs) um, 2009 or whatever. Um, I had to take off my author's hat and put on my publisher hat and editor hat for this project. And really decide what needed to happen in terms of being in service, the best service for this book project. Um, and look, we put this book together in nine months. This is literally a pandemic wow. baby book. Wow. You know, we um, did things quickly. I felt a, a sense of urgency about getting this book into the world. And I pulled together a team quickly. We pulled together, you know, over, over, 100 contributors throughout the Black Diaspora really quickly. And so, you know, if we had more time, maybe I could have pulled off making this an all-plant-based um, book. You know, I... I I, when I reached out to the different chefs to uh, contribute recipes, I wasn't overly prescriptive, but I did you know at least encourage people to consider may offering a plant based dish. But one, some people that's not their wheelhouse, and I wouldn't want someone to you know I didn't want it to be contrived. I didn't want someone to just like create Mm -hmm. some plant based recipe for the sake of doing in a book, and and it didn't shine because that's not where um, you know their craft is like. They, they just don't specialize in that. But also, I just want to give people space to tell their stories about their connection with food in a way that was most authentic to them. You know, Hawa Hassan, the Somali-American chef, she wanted to have this lamb stew, um, the Somali lamb stew, because it is a, a staple um, mm-hmm. in her culture. And um, I think that story needs to be told. So uh, I'm excited. I'm proud of the book. Um, in terms of books by Bryant, you know, you can always buy my old books because this is my last, you know, in terms of me being an author, this is it for me. I'm retiring mm-hmm. from um book um writing myself, but you know, obviously as a publisher, I will be continuing to support others in making their own books. Mm-hmm. So you
1: said that you reached out to over 100 um, contributors. And one of the things that I noticed as I read the book was that you have separate contributors for essays and for recipes. There were very few that both contributed um, a recipe and um, an essay. How did you decide um, who was going to contribute to the book and and what
2: they were going to um, offer? I mean, I have been thinking about a book project like this for a while. So, just you know, being in the community and, and doing this work and having all these brilliant colleagues to whom I was, um, with whom I was connected, you know, I had a good sense of just people's expertise and and what would make sense. Um, you know, where people would best fit in a book project like this. Um, I had been thinking about this book since I started my residency in Moad because, you know, I'm co creating this brilliant programming at this museum in San Francisco. And I've always felt from the beginning that this is something I wanted to share with the world. You know, this was 2015. We didn't have, really have an infrastructure for um, virtual programming. It was just kind of the ethos was, look, you come to the museum for the program and you're here that moment in time. And if you miss it, come to the next one. Um, from the first program that I had as, as chef in residence, black women, food and power, you know, I was just, blown away by the fact that we had people coming from all over the country. You know, I expected people from like Southern Cal or even coming from the Pacific Northwest. But the fact that we had people flying in from the East coast for our two hour program and our, our, small but mighty museum in San Francisco, I knew that this was special and that there was a hunger for this type of programming. And so just kind of put it on the back burner. But then, you know, in 2020 with <laughs> the um, post post, uh, state murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the subsequent uprisings, and then the revelation of racism within food media, I-, I knew that this was the time. This is when this book, we needed to to bring this book into the world. And uh, one of the first things I did was put together what I called uh, my kitchen cabinet, where I tapped uh, three of my brilliant friends and colleagues uh, scott alvis barton who's a chef and uh professor uh, at the nyu food studies program um uh, dara cooper who is like the ed of the national food justice alliance and um just a badass food justice activist and then therese nelson who is this um uh new jersey-based caterer and storyteller and community builder so i let them know that i'm putting this book project together And I know what I know. I I know a lot of folks, but there's some folks that I don't know. And so I wanted them to help me really think about um, who would best fit in each chapter. And, you know, I mean, everything. I I just wanted to make sure I got this right. And I trusted I trust these colleagues and I trusted their um, just kind of ensuring that we did this well. And, And I checked in with them about everything from structure to flow and pacing. Um, but they were very um, instrumental in helping me really think through potential contributors, and you know, introducing them to me to folks that I might not know. Like there are a number of people um throughout the continent that I might may have heard might have heard about their work or their research, but didn't know them personally. And so, you know, I really lean on community in putting this book together. And this is not my book. You know, my name is on the cover for obvious reasons, but I'm very clear that this is this book was a, a collective effort. I brought. Community together. I built a team. I'm good at what I'm good at. I'm build. I'm good at building teams. I'm good at helping move people towards a goal, and we um had um just a a brilliant collective of folks that helped birth this book into the world.
1: Um so one of the things that you just said was introducing you to people that you didn't know. Um with the book, I think that one of the names that people may not be familiar with is um the the legend the pioneer um in food media is Dr. Vertime Smart Grosner. Can you tell our listeners a bit about
2: her? Oh, sure. Um Mae Smart Grosner is definitely an early influence on my work as a chef and and as a creative person i mean she was a, a scholar she's an anthropologist uh she's a poet she wrote about food she was a you know she was a media personality in terms of like you know broadcast uh media and i she was one of the first people that i kind of encountered who helped me to understand like Gullah Geechee culture um i had heard about mm-hmm. it but you know, her, uh, her being so steeped in that culture and being kind of an ambassador to uh, the Gullah Geechee culture of the Coastal Carolinas, it um, just really helped me appreciate and understand that history much more. But, you know, I, I think one of the things about uh, Verte May Smart-Grosner that inspired me early on and in a similar way to Anna Lewis was just the, the – um, her – uh ability to sh- kind of authentically allow all her interests to show up in a way that made sense it kind of came together hmm. um you know in terms of her being a, a public figure you know not just being limited to one thing and and i just you know i always say i'm a creative person i don't like being reduced to anything being, you know a chef an author or whatever i'm a creative person and i like thinking about multiple ways in which i can inspire people and I think her work definitely did that for me. But, you know, one of the things is this whole idea of vibrational cooking is something that I've always thought about and encourage people to just, you know, really understand the way in which we bring our energy to the food um, that we create. And when we feed people, they're, you know, absorbing that energy. Um, I think about, you know, the 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 novel and then the film, like Water for Chocolate and and how they kind of touched on that, you know, just the way in which we can transfer uh, the energy we're holding into the food that we're making. And so I, I, you know, I'd say just that whole concept and idea really helped me to think about cooking as a mindfulness practice and really understanding that, you know, in terms of mindfulness and meditation, we don't just have to be sitting on a mat Um, in inside some temple meditating, like we can take opportunities throughout our day to you know meditate, whether it's walking meditation, whether it's cooking as meditation, um, and 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 that's one of the things that's been a through line of my work is really just helping people to be more mindful and 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 you know embrace this this idea that um Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh the Vietnamese Buddhist monk talks about around interconnection and inner being and just the way in which there is no separation. We're all connected. Um, any living being, we're simply reflections of each other. And I think when we can hold that, it, it helps us to kind of move through the world differently because, you know, even just something as simple as like the idea, and it's not simple, but, you know, just the idea of like sustainability. If, if I'm seeing um, myself being in, in unity and connection with, Every living being and system, then there's no way I'm going to pollute the air and the soil and uh, the water because you know I'm poisoning myself. So, um, you know, all that to say is, uh, Vertime Smart Grosner has been a, a major inspiration for me in, in, in so many ways, and I'm, I'm glad that um, she's getting her due. In fact, I, I um, hope that this is still happening, but I know, um, Julie Dash, the director was working mm. on a documentary film about, um, Bartimaeus Mark Grosvenor And I hope that is, um, released to the world so that more people can know about her brilliance.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'll be eager for that to, um, to premiere.
2: Yeah. She actually, so, and I don't know if you know that she actually appeared in Julie Dash's film "Daughters of the dust. So she's an actress as well. Uh, she just does everything. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
1: she does yes and um i believe that she was on npr like she was a uh, contributor um for some years on npr yep just fantastic so one of the things that you just said was unity and connection and i think one of the spaces where um that happens for black people is the cookout or the barbecue and um adrian miller wrote in his essay the barbecue about um uh, the cookout. So talk to me about the importance of that particular site, or even just broadly speaking about the outdoors and gathering as a site for um, producing and cultivating Black food and community.
2: You know, Adrian Miller, our, our brilliant public scholar, um, the, the essay he wrote is actually one of my favorites. Um, and i I didn't know about this distinction between like barbecues and cookouts. And I'm actually more interested and excited about cookouts now that I know (laughs) the (laughs) distinction and, you know, barbecues tended to be larger public spectacles. Um, Typically they took a lot of preparation, which is done by, you know, in the antebellum period, enslaved Africans um, preparing the space for white folks to then come and enjoy. And then, you know, afterwards during cleanup and then, you know, black folks were able to kind of eat food and, and, and just whatever, have that moment of respite. But um, the idea of a cookout, the, the difference, as um, Adrian Miller describes in this essay, um, between a cookout and a barbecue cookouts are, one, typically, sponta- you know, spontaneous. Um, they are something that, you know, is usually planned weeks in advance. Um, They tend to be more intimate, um, a smaller gathering. Uh, The host might make an anchor dish, but they have more of a potluck feel in terms of uh, the expectation that everyone brings something to the table. And people are just hanging out. And I just feel like in this period of, you know, this pandemic and shelter in place, that has been just our stilo, you know, in terms of alfresco Mm fresco um cooking outdoors and alfresco fresco dining and then just having these very intimate gatherings um where we can build community and connect in a moment where that's been you know so lacking in our lives so um yeah I'm all about the cookout and I I, I encourage people when you pick up the book go straight for that essay because it's um it's it's meaty <laughs> no pun intended
1: (laughs) there's a chapter um, in the book called land liberation and food justice and when I think about food justice I think about those first two uh, land and liberation that's integral to um, this this call to action Given your work in this area of food justice, Black food justice,
2: what does food justice looks to you? Um, Well, I'll tell you what food justice looks like to me in the future and what it's always looked like to me. And, you know, when I think about the way in which many of these snow-capped NGOs come into communities on a range of issues, but just talking about food, there is often this relationship with the community that's very exploitative. That truly isn't, you know, addressing the real structural barriers, the economic, the physical, the geographic barriers that so many communities face to accessing healthy, affordable food. I mean, like, quite frankly, some of these organizations are reproducing the same harm that we've seen. Um, in this not for profit industrial complex where people they aren't really addressing the problems you know it it reminds me of the kind of emergence of the field of social work in the early 20th century danny walkowitz this professor at nyu in the metropolitan studies program has this book working with class and he talks about this you know the way in which this field you know in its early period is you have these privileged white women going into communities Black communities, Native communities, or even, you know, we think about <laughs> the way in which, um, you know, many Europeans weren't even considered white at that point going into like mm. the, the, you know, Italian and, and and Jewish and Irish communities. Like it was really about it wasn't so much about helping people or lifting out of lifting folks out of poverty. It was about kind of patrolling the boundaries of class and policing the behavior of poor people. And I see this similar kind of harm reproduced in the food justice movement and, or I should say the food movement because food justice, I would argue the cornerstone. Um, so I'll, I'll say it like this food justice moves beyond advocacy and direct service mm. and calls for organized responses to food insecurity or food apartheid. Um, as we're describing it um, um, responses that are owned and driven by those most impacted by these issues, and I think that's what it has. That's what has to happen. That's how we'll see communities being liberated. Because people in communities, they're aware of the issues. They're aware of the problems that they face, whether it be environmental racism or food apartheid or you know crumbling infrastructure or underfunded, um, segregated public schools. People are aware of what's happening in communities. What they need are power. And resources shifted into their hands so that people can be self-determined and actually move towards liberation in the way that they best see fit. Um, So that's what food justice is for me.
1: Mm -hmm. I like that. So we're in the holiday season, Brian. And what is one dish that you um, would make? Um, you know to celebrate the the holidays, or what is one dish that you would tell our listeners to try out for this holiday season?
2: I will say, get black food, go straight to page two ninety six, and make this blueberry cheesecake by Malcolm Livingston II, this brilliant um, brother from the Bronx who um, was a part of the Ghetto Gastro Collaborative or Collective, and um, he worked at Noma, which many people. You know, say is the the best restaurant in the world, Nomen, Copenhagen. And this cheesecake, this vegan blueberry cheesecake, is mind-blowing. And I'll say that, you know, oftentimes people have a lot of hang-ups or kind of negative perceptions of what vegan cooking is. And I find that oftentimes a great way to ease people in is by, you know, giving them a really tasty vegan dessert. And I think that if you have some folks who doubt that they can be satisfied and, and pleased with vegan food, make them that blueberry cheesecake and yeah, it'll be a different uh, different conversation after that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we have our marching orders to make the blueberry cheesecake y'all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so Brian, last question, tell me what you are working
2: on now. I'm working on my publishing company um, as I mentioned, my literary agent and I, um, we proposed me having my own publishing imprint, uh, the Penguin Random House, and we got it. Uh, four Color Books is the name of the imprint. Um, four beautiful illustrated books for BIPOC uh, folks for drawing outside the lines. And I, you know, always my little wink at um, black folks, black women is four uh, C. You know, in terms of like hair texture, uh, so. Mm. <laughs> you know, for, for color is we are, I mean, we hit the ground running. We've acquired four books already. We're on the cusp mm-hmm. of acquiring a couple uh, more, Um, you know, we'll start off in terms of building our foundation with cookbooks and food related books. That's my wheelhouse. But, you know, as the, the company grows and as our list um unfolds. I want to publish books on everything I'm interested in, from poetry to prescriptive nonfiction to self-help and personal development. Um in fact we the second book we acquired was a lifestyle book by this young brother Adrian Burril, who's this um Brooklyn-based photographer, and he's doing this project um where he's traveling to educational institutions across the country and documenting Black student life from Ivy League to trade schools. And this came out of a project he did while he was an undergrad at UT Austin. I think it was the 1.9 project, which was um, kind of reflecting on the the population of Black men at UT Austin, 1.9%. And he did, um, you know, these portraits of, uh, you know, Black students on campus and lifestyle photos and coupled them with their. Uh, words about being black on this PWI in the 21st century. And then he got like, you know, some art exhibitions that he was able to, um you know, do to celebrate the work and we bought his book. So all that to say is I'm very excited about um, the projects that we'll be gifting the world. And um, I think if you know me and you know my approach, my ethos, my body of work, Um, you can expect similar um, projects in terms of like the energy um, that I brought to the publishing world. So super excited about that. And not just excited about publishing books. You know, there's a whole action arm of For Color where we're really, you know, putting a lot of energy into helping to ensure that BIPOC folks have more opportunities in um, food media and publishing. So we're planning a Black Food Summit at Moad for April um, of 2022, we are amassing databases with Black and BIPOC art directors and food photographers and prop stylists and food stylists and you know all these different fields in food media that are hard to get into because it's about you know networks and shadowing on set and being mentored. So um, you know Four Color is invested in and in, in helping to do all we can to. Uh, ensure that we have a more diverse um, food media and publishing world. That's amazing to
1: um, open the door for the next generation of food writers, um, cooks, chefs, and and poets and, and writers. So I really look forward to how your life will evolve as you go down um, this new um, um, path as a publisher. Thank you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Brian Terry is a James Beard and an NAACP image award-winning chef, educator, and author. He's the editor and curator of his newest book, Black Food, Stories, Art, and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora, published by Four Color Books. Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. My
2: pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.